This show is made possible by our Patreon supporters. To get access to our exclusive content and support the show, visit www.patreon.com forward slash EABB podcast. That's www.patreon.com forward slash EABB podcast. Thanks. Welcome to the Early American Brass Band Podcast. I'm Chris Triano, joined always by Stephen Canis Tracy. Hello. This is episode 48, and today we are joined by Dr. Joel Crawford. Joel is the owner of Joel Crawford Recording. He is a recording, mixing, and mastering engineer over there, and he's also a former musician with Saxton's Cornet Band. It was really awesome to get to hear Dr. Crawford's perspective on early American brass bands now that he's uh, removed from it for a few years and has his new career and some uh, some retrospective insight into the music that I think is uh, really awesome and a nice change of pace and something that I'm really excited to share with all of you. Yeah, definitely. We think it's a great episode, a good uh, perspective of it from uh, a different angle. Um, so that's that's always great to, to get to hear. And if you like what you're hearing on the show, as always, you can support us on all social media platforms. You can follow us there. That way you kept up to date with everything that we are uh, putting out. You can also subscribe to our YouTube channel where we put out not only the full episodes of each show, um, but smaller, uh, you know, tidbits that, that we release on YouTube videos, movie, movie clips, other things like that. Um, you can visit our website. That's eabbpodcast.com. A wealth of information up there that uh, we, we've put up. And if you want to get in touch with us, I think that's the only thing left for me to say <laughs> that I usually say at the end, but I'll say it here. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you can email us. Our email address is eabb.podcast at gmail.com. Uh, so I think we'll leave it there. I won't yeah, say anything geez, else. Geez, yeah. Steven, take up the whole episode. I, don't I know. <laughs> Long <laughs> intro, but here, here it is. Here's the episode. Thank you so much to Dr. Joel Crawford for joining us today on the Early American Brass Band podcast. Joel, thank you for coming. Well, thank you for having me, guys. Appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, of course, of course. Yeah, thanks for thanks for sitting down with us. Maybe we can get this one started and rewind a few years, or maybe more than a few years. When did you begin playing with Saxtons, and and how did you kind of get in with them? Um, I knew a bunch of the guys. Um, from playing in the uh, Lexington Brass Band. Uh, I started playing in that group when I started my DMA at the University of Kentucky and is interested in the brass band activity. I've long been a, a history buff um, on the kind of amateur end of it, just is a long time interest. And uh, the idea of period music is one that really spoke to me and uh, the Civil War in in general, something I've been interested in for since I was pretty young and, you know, going to the reenactments as a kid, I always thought was the most fascinating thing. And so I was able to get involved with them and start learning that music and playing those instruments and um, had a really great experience with them. 
Nice. What, so that was the British yeah. brass band experience, uh, kind of your first brass band experience or? Yeah, everything prior to that had been more the brass ensemble, um, more modern, you know, trumpets um, with uh, kind of the orchestra wind section expanded, um, like works of Strauss and things like that. So uh, working with uh, Dr. Holtz was uh, my first real experience to, with the British style and playing the, the brass band type cornet and instruments of that nature. Mm -hmm. So, and that was a, a great learning experience as well, both musically, you know, as well as the literature. Um, working with Dr. Holtz, who is a, um, a very well-known scholar on the British band history, one of the best out there. And he's retired now, but I'm sure he's still quite active. I know that there's a lot of listeners of the show that are interested in the history and the bands as well, um, but they're not necessarily either familiar with the early brass bands in their area or there are no early brass bands in their immediate area. Uh, I know you said you kind of got involved with Saxons through that, that British brass band. Do you have any advice to, to maybe some of those listeners who are interested in getting involved more with playing? Uh, that aren't quite sure how get on the internet and uh, just search um, a lot of the the um, the bands have a web presence now um, there are quite a few when I started my research on the my the performance practice aspect of the Civil War band one of the first things I did is let's see who else is doing this and what they have to say and just Googled just to kind of as my first shot. And there were tons of bands that came up and there were a lot of people that really, really loved this music and, and the, the activity of trying to put together something historic and this part of our, you know, our cultural heritage. And um, there are a lot of bands out there that you know, range from you know, the professional end to the more community and enthusiast types playing historical music. And there are lots of opportunities out there. And it's something that I hope, you know, that keeps growing as part of our community music making. We can do more than just play the Sousa marches in our community band. We can look to our history and find these instruments and play this music. Was the early brass band scene, the Civil War brass band topic, I guess I should say, something that you were interested in researching and doing your dissertation on when you started your doctorate degree? Or is that something that kind of came up either maybe organically or all of a sudden while you're already in the middle of the degree? It's something that kind of came up um, because prior to that and now still on the other side of that, um, my primary focus has been on contemporary music. Um, I went to two schools, my undergrad and master's at Iowa and Bowling Green, which are both known for their new music programs, where I was heavily involved with new compositions. And now my work now as a classical recording engineer is primarily uh, working with ensembles and record labels, um, promoting new music, um, contemporary composers, living composers. So I've kind of always had that, that what's new, what's going forward. Um, but uh, while well, at the same time being someone who really loves history and 
the first time I had that horn in my hand and really starting to learn that and learn from the guys in the Saxons, it kind of just like, I want to explore this. And that kind of happened pretty early in the degree that I decided that I really need to learn about this historically and see how far I can take it and dig into that rabbit hole. Can you tell us a little bit more about your current recording engineer career? Uh, sure. I mean, I'm a classical recording specialist. I um, work all around the country. I um, work with a lot of, um, you know, big ensembles and anything from colleges to professionals. And something I've recording is something I've been interested in for a long time and kind of got into it um, as a student. And then as a doctoral student, ended up working uh, with Dave Henderson, who's also a member of Saxons and a classical recording engineer. And uh, I found out pretty soon that people uh, called me a lot more for that than playing the trumpet and uh, <laughs> kind of took the hint a little bit. And just for my own uh, workflow, just to kind of be on that side of the production element just works better for me. Um, but it hasn't um, reduced my passion for the music and the, the research and the history of, of this music. Because, you know, kind of what I thought in the degree program was, maybe I'll get a job teaching somewhere and then I can teach music of the civil war as, as a side part on that. Um, but that's not quite where my life led. Um, but I like to help promote it as much as I can, because there's certainly a lot of really valuable research happening out there. And I think that the activity is gaining more and more steam and getting more attention. And I, I certainly see it a lot more now than I did, you know, 15 years ago when I first started dealing with this stuff. Though I, and I don't think it was just because I hadn't done it before and now I'm seeing it everywhere because I've done it. I think that, um, that there really has been an increase in the interest and um, people doing the research and kind of getting this more and more out there. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering, has your, did your, um, you know, performing and, and all your experiences in school like do, does that inform you know the recording you do now and your approach to uh you know recording ensembles when you're out working with them your like yeah. your performance experience in the past uh absolutely most of the uh more of the top tier of us doing the classical recording are you know trained musicians mm -hmm. and it's kind of necessary to be able to approach a lot of like the classical music and understand, um, be able to sit down with a score and conceptualize how you're going to transfer that sound into the recorded medium. So it's, it's still in a way very much being part of the performance. How do we take the performance and maintain it and deliver it to a different audience? Um, and I mean, score study is one of the really big parts of classical recording, really understanding all the nuance in a score, especially that's why I love new music, because if someone says you're going to record Mahler 2 tomorrow, I'll be like, OK, I know exactly what I'm going to do. You know, I don't need to look at the score to know what what that's going to need and require. But when I'm working with something new, um, you know, it really you have to take it apart and look at it. And what is this texturally going to be? What is the sound going to be? And even though the, you know, the historical band thing is something old, not something new, I think it's that similar kind of approach to it that really drew me to it. Because um, like in my dissertation, I talk about 
how we don't have treatises of American Civil War band. You can't go and say, what is this ornament supposed to be? Let, let me pull up the Haydn, you know, violin treatise. And we'll see what that says. You know, it, we don't have one of those. So we have to kind of take everything apart and be like, let's put this puzzle together of how this would have sounded. What would, what would it have taken to get to that, um, to get to this sound of what this band would have actually sounded like? And I think that's very much similar in a way to working with contemporary music, where it's something we're hearing for the first time, because we are hearing this music for the first time in 150 years. And mm -hmm. how do we make that first time kind of match? I'm curious in the recording work you do now, is it usually pieces that are being recorded for the first time or, you know, first or second time, or, or are these, you know, newer works, but still there are, there are some recordings of them out there. It's a bit of everything. Um, like uh, right now I'm, I have half a dozen projects uh, across the board and uh, two that we're doing uh, albums we're recording this year with the CCM wind symphony um, one is based on classics. We're just recorded Lincolnshire Posey. Um, and then on our next recording session, we're recording a brand new work um, for um, pianist Michael Shertok and the Wind Symphony that was, uh, I believe was commissioned for him. Um, not 100% sure, but I believe, it, so this will be the very first performance, very first recording. So doing a little bit of both, something, stuff that's old, something, stuff that's new. Um, I really like uh, recording something that's never been played before, the premiere, because then I get my artistic kind of stamp on it of how part of how I think this piece should sound. Um, like Lincolnshire Posey, we all know how Lincolnshire Posey should sound, right? We've all got that CD or cassette tape of Frederick Fennell, the Eastman Wind Ensemble, and it's hard to beat that, you know, and but with something new, um, we can give it a little bit more of our own artistic stamp to it. So are you working with uh, Kevin Holtzman? Yes, I am. And he is brilliant and one of my favorite people to work with. And this kind of music is something I'd love to see him get his fingers on a little bit. I know that um, David Goins has put a lot of work into creating um, arrangements of a lot of this music for the modern wind ensemble mm -hmm. to try to convey some of that sound as much as we can and the, the kind of the character and the stylistic elements of it into um, more of the modern wind band. So we can make it a little bit more part of our modern repertoire um, of the wind band since um, our more historic ensembles are obviously spread um, much more thinly throughout the country. Yeah. So. When um when Kevin was doing his DMA, I was finishing up my undergrad. Um, okay. So he, he I played under him a few times while he was uh, working with the the Wind Symphony, the Wind Ensemble. Um, super nice guy. Really happy to see him uh, having a lot of success and doing the things he's doing. So if if that way, if he ever hears this, he, <laughs> <laughs> he's what? doing a good job. Not that he needs me to tell him that he's doing a good job. <laughs> He's, he's doing big things are coming, you know, the, through uh, CCM and what he's doing and um, getting to watch it up close with doing a lot of their recording has been a real pleasure. And I think, you know, for the band world, there's going to be, you know, some big things eventually. Mm -hmm. So I hope anyway.
you were with Saxons, did you have any experience or opportunities to uh, record or do any of this audio tech stuff with Saxons? Or when you were with them, was it purely as a as a cornetist? <laughs> uh, we we did recording, um, but uh, Dave Henderson is the one who does their recording. Um, and so I played on a number of those recordings and assisted him a little bit. But um, although the Saxons recordings are done by Dave and he does a really very nice job with, I think, capturing that sound. So with either your experience assisting or kind of being able to take a step back and, you know, visualize and conceptualize what a recording project like that would entail, what are some challenges from the, the other side of the music stand, the technical side that our listeners might not be aware of that might be a challenge when recording uh, these types of bands? Uh, the biggest problem with a group like that is finding a space that projects the sound forward um, to a position where you can record it. When you have the upright instruments, the forward-facing instruments, um, in Saxons, we use uh, one over-the-shoulder baritone just because it's the best instrument that we have. So use it's kind of like a horn. You have to have a reflector up to kind of punch it forward. But other than that, being it's kind of a SATB like a um, like consort setup, basically, um, it, it would be a relatively straightforward recording. I'd probably record it with just a pair of omnis in a good sounding space and try to capture that that homogenous sound and get as much of the blend. Um, that's one of the characteristics of the sound of that type of group that really, you know, as someone who's an audio guru that I really enjoy is just the tonal texture and blend of uh, the cornet band type ensemble that is so unique. It's so much different than when you hear a modern brass ensemble. And it's, it's a really special sound. And I think that's one where it really has to be the blended single voice of the ensemble rather than, you know, hearing, you know, 15 different voices. From somewhere that that might have the vocabulary to be able to describe this better than I have in the past, what would you say is that tonal difference between a band like this and like a modern band? Like I know it's kind of a you know it when you hear it kind of thing but i know a lot of people talk about mellowness warmth the the sound that the conical instruments produce do you have thoughts on like specific maybe descriptors of what those differences are well compared to like say like a modern british band yeah um, let's go with that yeah. a modern british band still has a great deal of brilliance in the sound they'll talk about the warmth and the fullness. And a lot of times you're talking about warmth and fullness. You're talking about mid-range balance, you know, your middle and low voices being very full and round, but you listen to a modern British band and those cornets and the E-flat cornets, you're still getting a very brilliant top end um, where um, it's a very projected group. You know, you go hear one of like the, the um, top tier competition groups like in, in France and England. And the first thing they do is blow your hair all the way back. <laughs> it's like, I've never heard something so loud in my life. The first time I heard one of those groups, it's just overwhelming the, the, the brass power. And that power is a big part of that kind of ensemble sound and the allure of it. It's a lot of fun. It's like hearing drum corps, you know, you hear that great drum corps. I'm a big DCI fan. And uh, that, that just the power of it and the, the raw energy 
And it's very different in, in a cornet band because it's not loud, it's not in your face. And when it's when it's at its most, you know, kind of to the four, it's it's more like a string quartet almost, mm. where it's never really brassy and bright and really biting. I mean, you get some brassiness out of the E flats, of course, but it's it's there's always that hom- homogenous sound to it that's really kind of full and focused unto itself rather than as a kind of blazing wall of horns. There's just this kind of surge of energy from a more central, I think, singular voice is kind of the way I, I hear it, if that makes sense. Yeah. And then maybe putting our educator hats on, what do you think the benefit is for a musician to have that experience playing in an ensemble like that if they're playing in powerhouse orchestras and wind bands and maybe British brass bands? Why why is it nice to be able to uh, have the experience of the more homogenous sound and the, the mellowness and the, the warmth? I mean, just the delicacy that you need to learn to play in an ensemble like that. And the, the ear training is so critical. Um, I know my ear got so much better playing in Saxons. It's It got better than I, you know, in years of study and, you know, a year of playing with Saxons, you really listen so closely so that every voice really, really balances, you know, balances and is right in its right place and really listening to your neighbor. How is my tone um, enveloping in each other? What are we doing as a team? Now, those are obviously things you do in any brass ensemble, but I think there's the touch is so light with a cornet band in most instances. There are certainly like, you're gonna play like Calvary or something like that. You're gonna just let it rip. Um, But especially with the majority of the music being dance music, there's just this light touch, this delicacy, this more string quartet type approach, I think. At least that's the way that I've kind of always viewed it. Really homogenous sound. Yeah. Definitely. And we've gotten this far into the conversation without specifically mentioning intonation. So that's great. Or maybe we don't, <laughs> maybe we don't have to talk about intonation. We can pretend that uh, it's always perfect and, and be okay with that. Well, I mean, um, that's part of the ear training, you know, and because yeah. um, like Saxons plays extremely well in tune. It's in tune in any, a lot of other professional groups that I play in and, or played in, I haven't played in a couple of years now, but um it's just a lot of work that goes into that and a lot of listening and a lot of learning to play the instrument where it wants to be played really, you know, that's where you can get that pitch to settle. You see a lot of guys approaching this from the first time and they're really fighting that pitch. You know, when you get up there, you know, the 450, 460 pitch and you just kind of have to adjust your ear to hear that that's where that pitch is. I'm not just pushing in and playing sharp. That's my center. And we're going to sit there in that center. And, uh, and it, I mean, it just takes time and time and practice and a lot of listening. Just came right from our rehearsal at George Mason university with, with our earlier brass band there. And I was having us do exercises. We were just doing unison scales up and down because we kept on finding that for certain pitches, it, conveniently enough a lot of it was concert e flat and on that concert <laughs> e flat everybody was always muscling it down to where they either hear it at 440 or what they have to do in their concert horns but it would be like a mostly 
half okay scale up and down and then when you land back on e flat it'd be wildly out of tune because everybody's like pulling down and, and doing all <laughs> kinds of crazy things so yeah definitely uh definitely hear you on needing to play centered and not giving into what you think your your body wants to do you gotta you know lay into the ear and the the instrument itself a little bit more for sure yeah with the with these instruments you really it is about um submitting to the instrument um it's a very different instrument than than what we're used to playing now and obviously we've trained for a lot of us those getting into this now for decades of how to play a modern brass instrument and and these things are just completely totally in the opposite direction and they're going to play with much more resistance. You're going to have to play much focused, much lighter touch on everything. You can't go into it thinking that this B flat cornet I'm playing is going to play like my Yamaha or Bach or whatever you've got now. That because I play a extra large bore Yamaha brass band cornet, which is like blowing down a hallway, and yeah. <laughs> and it makes a nice big round sound, and I like that. Um, but you know, these these instruments from this period are going to be much more compact, much more focused, and you, you can't put that strength of airstream into it. You have to play the airstream where the instrument wants it to be and to where it plays centered. I know with the band, when we'd have, we often had guests play with us, you know, someone we needed a sub, um, and we'd have professors from local universities that are these amazing musicians play, and the first thing they do is overblow the snot out of it. Yeah. And they just sit there overblowing it all night long until we're like, dude, just relax. You got to sit way back on these instruments and let the instrument tell you when it's had enough. And kind of the more modern approach to brass playing is, you know, we're going to play the instrument where we want, where we want to play it. And um, with the historical instrument, we need to back way off and be like, where was this instrument meant to be played? And Obviously, we haven't been trained on that because yeah. um, there's very little teaching that goes on on an instrument like that. But um, just learn from the instrument. If Stephen and I wanted to play our Wilson euphoniums where they want to be played, uh, we'd never be able to play in tune in the key of F because uh, <laughs> Wilson euphonium Fs are like 20 cents sharp and the A's are like 15 cents flat. Yeah, that, that instrument's... Uh, a little crazy with where it wants to play, but once you muscle it and force it to do what you want to do, they sound great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I've been playing that particular horn for a long time, and I still haven't figured out how to do it, so... <laughs> <laughs> when we were talking about how you would record one of these early brass bands uh, in the space and, and all those things... I was reminded of the the image of Fred Fennell and how he recorded the Eastman Wind Ensemble's recording with how uh, he conducted the over-the-shoulder brasses so that they could see him, and then the woodwinds were facing out into the hall with rear view mirror, car rear-view mirrors <laughs> attached to their stand so they could see Fennell conducting behind him. It sounds like you would pick a space where the, the room works better for you kind of thing. Um, well, it kind of all depends because of how an instrument is designed to be heard. And you do need to orient musicians in a way that the proper sound is getting to the microphones. Um, with uh, with Saxons, with using um, Dave 
Henderson plays the over the shoulder baritone, at least when I was in the band that Flutie was playing. Mm -hmm. um, if you turn him around and face him right into the microphone, then that's not getting the characteristic sound of the instrument either um, mm -hmm. because it's, it should be more of an upright bell than a back-facing bell. But if it's a front-facing bell, then that's quite a different sound for a concert ensemble. Now, obviously, you know, for a marching ensemble with all over the shoulders, if everyone's kind of bright and blowing in the same direction, that's, that's fine. Mm -hmm. But with um, the Saxons, the goal is always with, you know, concert-level musicianship. And mm -hmm. what is the best possible example that we can make um, with the instruments we have of what would be the, say you heard the Port Royal band, what is our best example and how can we best uh, convey that in a concert yeah. setting to um, a modern concert audience and what they expect. Yeah. And that, that brings up really interesting points because especially with what instruments like tuba, euphonium, and horn you can maybe you know say that their sounds are intended to be heard reflected off of surfaces right and they're meant to fill up spaces as opposed to trombone or trumpet that are maybe more directional sounds but then if you're talking about over the shoulder instruments they were all intended right to be uh directional right because they were in front of the soldiers pointing directly back at them and outside sure. you know there's no reflective surface surfaces outside so it's kind of an interesting thing to think about that over-the-shoulder instruments are all directional, I guess, kind of like marching band instruments, if you want to think about it like that, except they're all facing forward like sousas and contras and marching baritones and mellophones and stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, that's not a bad... I hadn't actually thought of that, and that's kind of a good analogy. Um, some of those instruments, the few that I've had a chance to play, I haven't gotten to play many of the over-the-shoulders. Um, just because it's not what Saxons had available to us. Um, I think they had an over the shoulder set at one time, but that was prior to when I was in the in the ensemble. We only have like the more concert type instruments. But um, the the times that I got to play them, my impression was that they sounded brighter. Um, and that could have been just the example that I played. Um, it's so I can't say definitively on that. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, that's not something that I really thought of either until you were just talking about it. And um, it does remind me of the uh, the British brass band so-called recording setup that some bands will I've seen play in outside is where they'll set themselves up so all the upright bell upright instruments are facing out. Hmm. And hmm. Um, it's a different sound. Um, it is, you know, um, a more a mid-aggressive, low-aggressive sound when the tubas, the baritones, and the altos are all basically bell out to the audience. So I guess and that would be if if they're sitting in a a box formation to the conductor, it'd be on the conductor's left, I guess, looking at them so that the bells are yeah out that way. Yeah, wow, interesting. Yeah, I've, I've seen a band play like that once. It was a band from London that um, was at the Great American Brass Band Festival. I think they were from London, somewhere in, in the UK. And it was, it was quite a different sound um, with all the the bells facing out. So make it sound 
more American in any way? <laughs> I mean, it was it was more brassy. It wasn't quite as round as you that that you think of. And they played a program that was more on the aggressive, um, up tempo side. Okay. So that may have influenced it as well. I just and that was about six or eight years ago now. I just okay. still, you know, reminded of that. So it made an yeah. impression. Wow, very interesting. I'll try to find some uh, YouTube recordings of those kinds of setup. That'd be really interesting to hear. Yeah, yeah, I'd be interested to hear that. It was always funny when when the like a conductor would mess with the setup of like the concert band or the wind ensemble, you know, and move move the like the trumpets up a row or something. And I I forget where it was, but like we we the conductor went through a, a like a period of a couple of weeks where he changed the setup every single rehearsal because he was like trying to figure <laughs> out what he what kind of sound he wanted out of the group but essentially we used to do that with a, a tuba quartet i played in where we had three euphoniums and one tuba so unless you set up in like a check mark kind of thing with all three euphoniums on one side and the tuba on the other side you'd always have one person at least with their bell facing the back um you could do some cool things then I think in a master class, someone had us like all the euphoniums stand behind and put the tuba player like in front. That way everyone's bell is pointing off to the side, but they were all in the same direction. Yeah, I did it that way once too. Wasn't yeah. a huge fan of that setup, but yeah, I, I did a concert like that once. You need a rear view mirror on the stand for the tuba <laughs> player so you can see the people behind them. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> So your dissertation title, um, Performance Practice of Brass Band Music of the American Civil War, colon, a perspective from Saxon's cornet band. Can you kind of give the, maybe the 5,000 foot kind of overview and, and maybe how you arrived at this as a topic for your uh, labor of love, shall we call it? Um, well, uh, my degree is in trumpet performance and pedagogy. So um, the project needed to um, my, my early drafts of the project were very historical and um, the professors are like, you got to remember what you're actually studying here, you know, <laughs> mm -hmm. let's talk about the performance. And so I kind of took a turn to talk more about, um, I think my overarching goal was to have a document that uh, folks like you, people that are educated musicians that might be interested in approaching an ensemble like this, say you're a graduate student and you want to try to put together an ensemble of, you know, Civil War period performance, um, here's something to get you started. That'll give you the basics and the overview of what this music is about from a performance um, musician's perspective. And so that was kind of the goal was a document as a starter, a conversation piece to help inform um, trained musicians. So this is not meant to be um, kind of like the Dodsworth, which is the real basic, you know, this is how to make a sound on the instrument. Mm -hmm. we're, we're not, we're already talking to already trained musicians. Um, so we can talk in a little bit more detail about, you know, articulation style, breast support, things like that. How do we take the modern and approach it to the historical in a way that we can get um, to what we believe um, approximates this what this would have sounded like mm -hmm. so how did how did you go about 
for this research, finding that information and being able to put it into words? Was it all hands-on experience with just Saxons, or did you kind of go out and, and survey other bands, or, or what was that process like for you? Uh, a lot of it is based on my experience with the band myself, um, talking to all the members in the band, um, any musicians, I kind of put out a call as far as I could reach to anyone involved in this activity that wished to participate, um, talk to a number of faculty that had an interest in this at other schools. Um, Don Johnson was really big help on this project, who's, he's sadly passed now, but um, he was a huge advocate um, of historic music, both in his, the natural trumpet was kind of his thing, the Baroque, but he was also very big into keyed instruments and um, the uh, sax horns and instruments like that. So I spoke to as many enthusiasts, um, hobbyists, professionals, anyone that had a thought on this type of music, because so much of it comes down to um, our experience with it. What do we believe? Um, what can we infer from the resources we have what seems to be the right the right way to go about it because we do have some answers like we can look at what what would have been the tempos well what is a tempo of a waltz or a shottish or a reel you know we can look at historical documents for those type of things to kind of get our tempos but then what would the sound have been like what, what would the instrument have sounded like what would have the the way you play the instrument been like um and, you know, especially like the opera transcriptions, would they have been like someone going out and playing it, how it would have sounded in an opera hall? Probably not. It would have been, you know, a little more up-tempo, a little bit more exciting, like think of the song from the movie kind of thing, except for mm -hmm. opera in this case, because that was popular at the time. Mm -hmm. um, so I really put together as many different sources as I could be there the the music itself. Um, I have stacks and stacks of you know letters and newspaper articles and any type of description of the music that, that I could find. Um, though that was often not very helpful, I found. Um, when I started out that process of looking for, let's look for descriptors um, of this music. Um, almost everything you find says it's the most amazing performance they've ever heard. <laughs> and it was rousing and upbeat and, and moving and, and lots of very, you know, ornamental flowery language mm -hmm. um, with very little of actual detail on the music making. So, and there's very little to almost nothing written academically about the music from the period yeah. you know there weren't um music professors somewhere writing well we experienced this brass band concert let's break it down <laughs> you know a, a lot of it really comes down to inferring what we can from the sources that we have because it's not super well documented of what it would have 100 percent sounded like something i don't remember if this comment made it into a previous episode or not i might have cut it out but something that I found interesting, you know, looking at old tintypes, different images, seeing people of the time, seeing the, you know, the occasional one of them doing something like silly or whatever, or reading journal entries of them, you know, being people and being human. You're really able to see that 
these people in a lot of ways were, were very similar to how we are today, you know, still goofballs, a lot of them still having fun. Uh, and then in like the Dodworth brass band school, there's the line that says something to the effect of, uh, play the music, you know, one of the rules, play the music as it's written. Don't <laughs> embellishment, don't embellish it on your own. If you want to <laughs> play something fancier than what's written, then stand up and do a solo, like a like pick a solo piece. Uh, don't mess with the arrangement kind of thing. So like, to me, that shows that, you know, just like in middle school band, people are like noodling, like on the song, <laughs> like make, making up their own stuff and, and having fun with it. And, uh, you know, there was the, the military aspect of it where I'm sure a lot of things were much straighter, but, you know, the community band element of it, you know, these guys were just honking away on plumbing like we are today. And if people have the urge to switch octaves and play, you know, pedal tones every once in a while and got to assume that it was happening back then, too, which is kind of <laughs> yeah. In some ways, a comforting thought for some reason. <laughs> yeah, and, and you know, speaking of just the you know the way we kind of are now, the one of the things that kind of struck me with so many of the different like soldiers journal um, entries that mention the music, there's so much pride in it. Um, this was their regimental band, you know, and and they loved it, and it brought them closer to home. You know, they were, this or that music reminded me of being here or there. And th there was a real love for it. And just as we have, um, you know, a love and appreciation and, you know, the fan culture to our modern day artists, mm -hmm. you know, there was a real love and appreciation amongst uh, the fighting folks and all the people in the communities that their community bands um, and that's probably why there's so much of the flowery language about it is, you know, these were stables in the, the regiment, in the community, and these people love their music and they love the experience of the music making. And even if it may not have been the greatest, you know, they had this very positive experience with it, um, which I think is, is maybe one of the bright sides of such a horrible conflict is that there was this culture that still somehow poked through. Did you grow up in a community band scene? I did. Um, I'm originally from Iowa and my dad is a, oh, he's retired now, um, was a high school band director for 42 years and i played in two different community bands um, when i was a kid and um one that was directed by my uh, middle school band director who i believe is going on 45 or 46 years now and been leading that band for a long time one of the oldest bands the timber city band one of the oldest bands in iowa uh continuously performing bands and um and when i was in college i played in um, a professional park band um we play several services a week. Uh, we had one of those Wenger semi trucks that opened up into a bandstand, and nice. so the the band tradition is something I've that's always been near and dear to me. So, do you think it was having that community band tie growing up that kind of got you into the uh, historical band interest a little bit later in life, or it very well may have because I mean that's what led me to the. Um, 
the Lexington Brass Band, which is a community group, um, even though it has a lot of um, college and professor type members, um, it's still very much a community-based, community-supported ensemble, which is wonderful. Um, and there, there's always been that desire to be involved in music making. Um, I'm a little sad that I don't get to do it now. I just, time, I can't. Um, I don't have time to practice or go to rehearsals, um, but I still love to go and support it as much as I can. And um, as what I love to see, you know, people just supporting people making music. Definitely. Your, your dissertation is readily available online, so I appreciate you doing that, whatever, $70 fee. That's what I had to pay, the $70 <laughs> fee to, to make it free online. Uh, heads up, Steven, save up for that if you want to get, <laughs> read it for free. Uh, so we'll be able to include it you know, in uh, our show notes, and, and we'll link to it and everything for this episode. But um, I'm wondering, with your doctoral research, we already talked a little bit about some of the processes you took and stuff. Is there one nugget of information or revelation or information that you included in the dissertation that you're either particularly proud of or something that you think is particularly unique to your document that you're proud of? That's a tough one. There, there have been so many people that have been doing this type of work and just doing so much really wonderful work and research in this area that I don't know that my document is any particularly special any reason but um with it I just hope that my kind of target audience of what I would hope to get from it is someone who hasn't heard this music before who might be looking into it just looking for something different that might be involved in history might pick it up and say I want to give this a shot um help this music live on um and I hope my document can give um, enough of a basis um, of knowledge that someone can read it and then say, okay, I've got an idea. I think I know I have the tools to start this. Mm -hmm. um, it's not going to give you the be all end all of how to play in a historical brass band, but my goal is to say, I hope that this can be enough that someone can walk in and be like, okay, I've got an idea. Let's, let's, let's get this going. Let's get this rolling. Um, I'd certainly love to see more programs doing like what you're doing. Um, uh, was it was George Mason, yep. um, yeah. you know, with teaching this to students. Yeah, There's I'll, a lot I'll... of em emphasis on, you know, I'm seeing more and more historical performance stuff coming up. Um, I know at the University of Kentucky now, uh, uh, Jason Dole is very big at, with the um, natural trumpet, the Baroque trumpet, and he has an amazing program for the Baroque trumpet. And I think understanding our musical culture is something that is very important to understanding our future. Um, where we came from, where does this music come from? When you play Baroque music on a, a piccolo trumpet, it's very different from when you play it on the natural trumpet as intended. And it, you know, that informs our modern performance. And I think music of this period, um, the, our Civil War period, even though this was a short, rather brief thing, um, because the cornet band wasn't really around for that long. It was kind of a shift through. You know, the saxhorns arrived in the 1850s. You know, they were getting more popular around the 1860s. In late 1850s and they threw some cornets in there and but then by the time we came out of the civil war we were 
heading into the wind band movement. Mm-hmm. So I think a lot of this gets a little bit overlooked because of its lack of longevity. Um, but it's still an important part of the development of the American School of Brass Playing. And mm-hmm. so I, th- I think studying that and bringing this, you know, more to it, um, both the community and academic side of it, um, we get to hear something that's unique. It's part of our culture and um, our American history, and is part of our, you know, I guess you say, uh, academic history of the where our brass playing came from. Yeah, definitely yeah. I agree. For sure. I feel like, if nothing else, too, like, like all of all of that aside, you know, very very valid reasons to to teach it and everything. I mean, it's. Even even just playing this music on a modern horn flexes your you know your ears like we were saying before and you're just your your overall musical sensitivity and uh, you know being able to be agile and listen and react and respond in the moment to your you know colleagues in the ensemble and then you know I haven't I don't think I've actually played a period instrument yet now that I'm saying this yeah I know Chris uh, is looking behind him pointing at all the ones <laughs> in his apartment <laughs> that I could right there you could play that one that I could literally walk 200 yards and and play mm-hmm. but um <laughs> but I I feel like, yeah it's, those those skills are probably even more developed when you when you play on the period horns too um so yeah I, I think there's a lot of value in this even though you know like you were saying it's kind of a rather condensed period of time where this stuff was really active and and popular but again i I feel like i'm the king of right turns here chris unless you had a question to ask i wanted to ask something about what i see and and then hear quickly read in your dissertation um you talk briefly about wax cylinder recordings and i remember uh and, and you cite the what is it uc santa barbara library has you know digitized a a number of wax cylinder recordings and i just i've stumbled across this a few years ago i thought they were the coolest thing ever um those wax cylinder recordings because it's like a a snapshot of you know however long they were able to capture on just a hollow cylinder of wax with a diaphragm and a needle and a big recording horn (laughs) it's so crazy that they're able to do that did you get lost uh listening through those when you found them yeah, I listened to tons of them. Yeah. I spent a lot of time um, trying to, I called a number of museums, you know, looking online for different um, uh, databases of these things. I think it was Don Johnson that turned me on to those. He's like, mm-hmm. oh, you haven't seen Santa Barbara yet? Go check it out. You'll get lost on the rat pole. And there's so many cool things there um, that it's, you know, it's this peak at history. And I, uh, it's sad that none of the tinfoil ones, which are earlier, um, I would have thought that maybe someone would have digitized them in some way, but, and they may be, I just didn't, wasn't able to discover any of that as it related to this topic Mm -hmm. um, that existed. But I would have think that you would be able to digitally scan that somehow. Um, Because I know they can't be played, but I guess I, that's probably a follow-up thing to look into. Um, I didn't. There's, there's your second dissertation. <laughs> <laughs> what is some of the material that they had on wax cylinder that you listened to? Um, I don't 
remember offhand. Um, that was quite a few was years it, ago. Was it wind band music? Was it early jazz? Was it uh? There was vocal, a lot of um, early band, salon band, some brass band type stuff, but they were small, not a regimental type band. Um, quite a few early, I listened to a lot of the early wind band stuff, um, in informing some of this, just cause it was probably about as close as we could get to, um, the style being that they were playing a lot of the similar material, you know, the marches and dances, um, cause, uh, the early jazz, um, wasn't, you know, happening at the time um with uh, the civil war groups mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah there's a lot of um in that that uc santa barbara uh wax cylinder library archive um there's a lot of the like edison band um they're in there a ton um there's some Sousa stuff in there too which is which is kind of cool to so hear Ed edison band would have just been the the recording companies like house band edison's recording mm -hmm. company for the cylinders and that, i think they had an orchestra version of it too but it's usually right. just like a house group kind of thing for it. yeah there's a cool video too of um i think it's like the edison museum there's an edison museum right i think so um yeah, gotta be one somewhere right? hopefully <laughs> yeah now that i've said it out loud but um <laughs> i i know there's definitely a youtube video of like uh uh either a museum employee or somebody like demonstrating how a wax cylinder recording was made. I, I remember it being outdoors. I can remember the video very well and I'll link it in the show notes. Um, but it's, it's a cool little, uh, I think like 10 or 12 minute demo of uh, them actually doing a recording on a wax cylinder, which is really neat to see. And the, a diagram of like the original Dixieland jazz band doing wax cylinder recordings and they wouldn't like have them lined up vertically. Right. So like if somebody was like taking a solo, they'd go to the front of the line to play into the horn. And if they wanted something more subdued, they'd be further away from it. But they were more like in like a, a straight line playing into it. Technology has come a long way. So. Right. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> um, the last question that I have and we can maybe debrief after this and, and see uh, how we're feeling. But the last question I have is, is probably one that you got from your committee at the very end, too. What sort of follow-up research do you think that either somebody else could take directly from your research or maybe something as a, a second dissertation, something follow-up that you would want to do? Where do you think this particular line of research goes from here? Well, and I mentioned earlier, um, one of the things that I think um, is really taking this um, kind of to the next level is what uh, Dave Goins is doing with taking the, the original manuscripts and adapting them for the wind band and trying to do it in a way that maintains what we would hear of a balance. Um, it, so it doesn't sound just like, here's a wind band playing a shotish. You know, it's, mm -hmm. this is a wind band written in a, in a way that will get you the flavor of what this music was. So we're taking this music um, and maintaining it in whatever way we can and getting it out there. And it's uh, with, I believe what he's doing with the performing editions also is including history type materials with it, uh, with the intention of educating students about 
this period and the music and the culture surrounding the conflict and um, obviously not getting into the actual war itself, but the music and how the music and the field music, how it functioned. And so I think that that's probably kind of the next place to it is how can we work these ideas into um, our education system at large? How can we promote the, this music and get it more into uh, the consciousness of those uh, who are educators? Um, so this may be kind of a basis for say, you know, informed students to maybe want to start their own ensemble, but where we go from there is how do we, how do we take the next step? How do we build more ensembles? How do we um, take the music and the, um, and these manuscripts and um, interpret them in a way that are more accessible? Because um, most of the manuscripts are just notes scribbled on a page. Mm -hmm. Um, almost none of them have tempos. They don't have much or anything in the way of dynamic markings. It was just understood conventions of the time. Oh, this is a reel. This is a quick step. We're going to play it how a quick step goes. Mm -hmm. Well, how does a quick step go? So um, uh, Dave's really uh, doing some great work with that. And I think that that is probably the next best step is um, performing editions of the music that are informed through research um really getting this music out there and a lot of that historical context stuff is kind of being done by the marine band right now with their Sousa project i know with each Sousa mm -hmm. march that they release to the public it's a at least a full page you know uh more than just program notes you know pretty substantial history that they put at the very beginning of each of those editions so mm -hmm. uh yeah, yeah, I would cool. love to see um, if so much of this music would be so well suited to music education. A lot of these quick steps, especially, so there are so many quick steps in these books and they're all, you know, short little two, four, um, moderately up-tempo pieces. Um, and a lot of them are easily playable um, by probably, you know, middle school on up age kids. Mm -hmm. And so there's a, just a treasure trove of our own musical culture um, that's right here at our fingertips and we should be making it. And the more we make that music available and the more it gets into the public consciousness, you know, the more it would hopefully create a demand for people playing on the extant instruments, you know, the, the real thing. Let's mm -hmm. go and see and touch these instruments. Here's some, here's some history. You know, our kids played this piece on the last band concert. Now let's hear the professionals do it or the community group do it. Um, and just building awareness, I would, would hope. Yeah. yeah, we need more concert bands playing Fireman Polka, right? <laughs> <laughs> hey, that is such a great piece. I love yeah. it. <laughs> it's a good one. That's, uh, we played that, uh, we, um, one of the performances that I did is probably the most memorable with um, the band was uh, when we split a concert with the Cleveland Pops at Severance Hall. Wow. And, um, and uh, you know, playing in a great hall with a great audience. Um, and the acoustic in that hall is so good that it's really made the instruments sound about as good as they can. Really, you know, really highlight that richness. And that fireman's polka, you know, gets people to their feet. And it's a lot of fun. And I think it highlights 
what this music should be about. You know, it's it's uplifting, it's rousing, you know, it's it's a lot of fun. You go and you enjoy this musical performance and you become involved in the performance. Joel, this has been this has been great. It's been great to get to know you here a little bit and, and chat with you about your experiences and your your research and everything. So we're really thankful for your time uh, tonight. Where can people go if they want to find out, you know, more about you, more about what you do, uh, you know, and, and some of the recordings that you're making? Um, well, I have my website. It's uh, joelcrawfordrecording.com. It's not. Uh, up to date all the time, but it has some of the newer projects and links to where you can hear some things for free. And um, most of the the big projects I do are on Spotify and Amazon Music um, that you can hear for free. All right, Joel. Well, thank you so much for coming on. This was awesome. <laughs> this really makes me want to, you know, get out and listen. I'm gonna have to go to hear a Saxons concert the next one the time they're around me, so I can hear that sound again. I'm I miss it and. Uh, need to get out and support some of our local groups around here. I think there's a couple here in the uh, Southwest Ohio area. And yeah, you got some in Ohio, you got some in Illinois, you know, there's, there's a, a few groups up there. So we have a, we have a document on our website that has all the current brass bands in the area. So feel free to go over there and email whoever we linked on in that document. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to thank you guys, you know, I appreciate the opportunity to revisit some of this and it's kind of, made me realize I need to get back into doing some of this. And so hopefully I can do that at some point. So yeah, yeah. I've, maybe I've, find a way to record some civil war bands. <laughs> so yeah, there you go. Yeah. That's it right there. Thank you again to Dr. Joel Crawford for coming on to the Early American Brass Band podcast. Awesome to get to hear uh, diving into his dissertation research and also his experience as a recording engineer and his time with Saxon. So thank you, Dr. Crawford, for coming on the show. Yeah, and I won't waste time here by saying the whole spiel that I did in the intro. Uh, but if you listen to the intro, uh, you can support us on all social media platforms. Visit our website, eabbpodcast.com, for show notes for this episode, where we'll have links um, to, to things we mentioned, um, and also links to where you can hear some of the stuff that Joel has recorded. And speaking of that, we have a featured album uh, for this episode, and we are going to turn it back over to Joel. Well, it's not... Uh... Not Civil War, it's Gershwin, but uh, yeah, sweet. a recent album that came out in October with the CCM Wind Symphony under uh, Kevin Holzman and um, featuring pianist Michael Shertok, works of Gershwin and Adams. Um, is a pretty cool album and some really great playing, and there's going to be a couple more albums with some band classics that are going to be really cool coming out. Um, so I uh, encourage everyone to go out and support their you know, local wind bands, and whether they're community bands, college bands, get out there, listen to some band, uh, especially the brass bands. And uh, um, I really think what these two guys right here are doing is really amazing, really taking something that is a, a love of mine and really taking the research to the next level. And I think that that's really fantastic. Music for this episode was provided by the 8th Green Machine Regiment Band from George Mason University in Fairfax, Virginia, and the Saxton's Cornet Band. And my dog. <laughs> <laughs>